something I was going to come to later, but I may as well ask now. There are certain characters in this story. For example, uh, Lucy Endicott, who was the, the girl who stayed with the Evanses and apparently went off with Evans for a couple of nights. There's Mr. Hookway that Evans and Christie both sold their furniture to. There is, who was the other one? Joan Vincent. Jonathan, when you were doing your book, did you make any attempt to track these people down? I mean, did Kennedy speak to them in, in 61? Do we know I what became of these people? Hookway, because Hookway gave an interesting comment, because Hookway was one of those people who actually liked Christie. That's he right. thought he was a rather pleasant, in, interesting, intelligent man. Mm. And I think, to be fair, Kennedy does include a statement which Hookway told him about Christie. Joan Vincent, I mean, she makes various statements in the files, and she changed her mind quite a lot about when she actually came to Rington Place and what happened. Apparently, she was un- undergoing mental health treatment at St. Bernard's Hospital in the 50s. Mm. So perhaps that is a reason for why her accounts are so confused. Most writers say, well, she made one account and that's it. Actually, she made several. Right. As to Lucy Endicott, who was later Lucy Dyson, she went back up to Yorkshire and got right. married I think, to a bus driver. I mean, she was born in about 1932. So she may be still alive. Joan Vincent, again, may still be alive. About Joan Vincent, one fact I did learn about her after I'd written my book, naturally, mm. was that she was one of the few people who actually came forward after the murder of Beryl and said good things about Beryl. She said that Beryl was a very kind and helpful woman, and she was the only person who helped me when I was ill. It's regrettable that in, in a more recent book, which I'm sure will come to very soon, that that anecdote is not included because I think that would be another great one show about Beryl's character because Beryl's character mm. I thought was a bit of an enigma we now know a lot more about her than we did but until the last year hardly anybody had anything much to say about her partly because she was so young when she died mm. it wasn't very much and only someone who was very close to her would know about her character and her history and I'm glad to say that has been brought out into the open now yeah, I suppose the thing we always heard about her was that she was a poor housekeeper. That was another, that was in Kennedy's book, wasn't it? And has been repeated ad nauseum, I'm sure. Of course, we had the 1971 film. Again, it follows the line of the Kennedy book, really. But just briefly, what did you think of the characterizations of, let's just say, Richard Attenborough, John Hurt, particular? Anyone want to take that one? Yes, the, um, I, I'm always pedantic and say it's the 1970 film. Um, oh, okay, right, sorry. Yeah. But, uh, I think it's a, you know, in and of itself, it is a good film. And they, the characterizations by, as you say, Attenborough and John Hurt and, and the others are, are good. It's, the fly in the ointment, of course, is that it positions itself as a true story, which mm. no one could really believe that it is that. The other great thing about it, from my point of view, or from other points of view, is that it was, um, they kept... Rillington Place must have closed alive long enough to do the location filming just. I think it was touch and go. They were, mm. they were wanting to get on with the slum clearance programme, but they managed to keep it going long enough to do the shooting. And that, for those of us who come later, is a great benefit because at least you can see something off the real street. And no film set, however good it was, would ever be as good. It's a pity that the film reinforces the standard version and adds some errors of its own, plenty of mm. them. So I think you have to take a distinct view that as a film, as a piece of entertainment, dark entertainment, and mm. for historical record reasons of the street, it's very, very good. In terms of you know enlightenment as to the truth, then alas, it takes us probably in the wrong, well, definitely in the wrong direction. And um, does the story a, a disservice in, in that way? Uh, I'll just make a brief comment and then I'll throw to Lindsay and Jonathan. Yeah, they managed to keep the two Ronnies out of shot as well, apparently, when they were filming it. So that's a bit of an in-joke, everybody. Yeah, it was something we mentioned earlier. What was I going to say? Yeah, I mean, I'd forgive them certain things, like, for example, when Evans and Beryl appear, they, the caption says 1949 and, and they've already got Geraldine. Now, obviously, we don't really need to see necessarily the birth of Geraldine. You know, they could have done that, of course. But, you know, I'd forgive them those devices. I think it's books that I would forgive less because, you know, a book has got however many pages. A film is obviously things like condensing characters. So they condense Joan Vincent and Lucy Endicott into one character. But uh, Lindsay and Jonathan, uh, brief comments on the film. 
Attenborough and her I've, in particular. Go on. I've always loved the film ever since I was very young. The fact, again, that street in it was an absolute bonus and brilliant. But again, you really have to be careful to divide between fact and fiction. It's mm. not a documentary. It's not a, a historical account. And it's very misleading, the very open words, this is, you know, this is a true story. And to be fair to them, though, they do put the disclaimer that it is based on Ludovic Kennedy's book. But how many people would have even spotted that, to be fair? Probably mm. not many at all. Mm. So as a historical drama, it's great. I think Christie, depicted by Attenborough, is brilliant. For me, he brings the character alive. He's absolutely fantastic. I couldn't imagine, you know, I mean, the recent series was good with Tim Roth as well. But for me, I think Attenborough nailed it, even though physically he looked a little bit different because Christie was taller. He's five foot eight. He didn't have a stoop as he often is in a lot of these films. You know, he was very upright in the way he stood. Hmm. So the physicality, I'm not sure where they got all that from. Maybe it's they did it just to the character analysis or whatever, but mm. in reality, a little bit different. John Hurt, he looked similar to him, but again, John Hurt, um, I think, was taller than Evans because Evans was a five foot five, I believe. I think yeah. Jonathan, you said in your book, pretty sure. Um, yeah. And I didn't realise how tiny Evans was really compared to other people. Really, he w- he didn't weigh much either, and you you do have to wonder, well, could he have held bodies down on his own the stairs? And if christie has got a bad back, could he have done it? You have to think about all these little things, really, with the dynamics mm. of the person's physicality. But, yeah, the two actors, for me, I thought were fantastic, I have to mm. say, as a, as a film. John Hurt's first real role of any consequence, wasn't it? Which I think makes it even more impressive, first main film role, anyway. But... I think he was in A Man for All Seasons, but that was a pretty brief role, I think. That was 66, so, yeah. Probably one of his first main ones. Well, he was, wasn't he? Yes. The rather sort of ironic thing in the film is that in 1953, Ethel says, oh, there's barely been a soul in this house for the last two years. Where, of course, (laughs) the reality is that there was this massive overcrowding. Yeah, the Windrush generation, as they call them. You know, we always have to be careful with um, making comments that might be construed as racist or whatever, but I think it's fair to say that there was quite major overcrowding. Would you agree that? The Christie's did have a case for saying that, you know? Yes, and if, if you read Ethel's, that's one thing I wish people would publish. I know quite a few people who personally own letters written by Ethel Christie. Mm. Uh, one person has about 20. I just wish they'd publish them because when I've read them, they give you such an insight into their life at Rillington Place. The racial tensions with mm. the people upstairs mm. really comes across. She's passionately against the people who live upstairs. I'm not going to lie, because of their mm. race and everything else. And it really does come across she's got a problem <laughs> in these letters. Letters also show she's not under Reggie's thumb, as I think some people have seen. She's quite an independent lady. She's got her own mind. And that comes across in, in these personal letters. And I just wish the people who own all of these would um, formulate a book together, maybe, and just get them out there, because they really yeah. are an invaluable source into not only their characters in real life, but what was going on in the house on certain days, years before certain things, you know. I know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because those letters, if you think about it, it's, it's a middle-aged lady writing letters, but within this context, they suddenly become, you know, they're like gold dust to an investigator because they're real. You know, she wasn't being prompted by anybody. She wasn't writing a book. It's, it's real. Jonathan, briefly on the film, anything else to add? Well, I would echo everything that John and Lindsay have already said. The other point I, I would add is that as a historian wrote in 1970s, as he's writing a biography of George III, the average man does not get his history from learned journals. He gets his history from TV and film. If you think mm. how many million people will have watched that film or the TV programme, several million, I, I don't know the exact number, how many people have, have read certain books? Mm. Probably in the thousands, maybe. Mm. So... About 100 times at least as many people will have seen a film or TV programme than they would have read a book, however good or bad the book is. Absolutely. And I'm sure that Lindsay will corroborate this, is that a lot of people have, have watched something and say, for example, in the Jack the Ripper case, well, it was something to do with the royal family, wasn't it? Or it was something to do with a doctor. Mm. That's a sort of general gripe about film and TV generally. But, I mean, I echo what Lindsay and John have said. It's great to see the actual street itself. The performances are generally good. Historically, it's um, all over the place. Yeah, okay. Fair assessment. Excellent. 
All right. So chronologically, we get to Jonathan's book. Was that 2012, Jonathan? Is that right? Yeah. What can we say about your book, seeing as you're here? Well, brilliant, I, brilliant. <laughs> very kind, Lindsay. So basically, the idea of the book was twofold. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, to get things factually as correct as possible, because most books haven't, some worse than others. And secondly, perhaps, to portray John Christie not as a simple figure of evil, a monster, which is the majority verdict, but to, to suggest that, you know, he was a human being, he did terrible yeah. things, no doubt about that, he was rightly hanged, mm. but to explore the rest of his character as well, his mentality, his interests, and also to give more information about the victims, the six women he, he definitely killed, because most of the writers on the topic tend to dismiss them in a sentence or two. So that's mm. what the purpose of my book was. I think I succeeded. It could have been better, but no, yeah. Well, obviously, um, the most recent book, which is one we will get to later, Peter Thorley's book, I think that gave us more information about Christie, and you're absolutely right. It's one of the things I'm very big on, because like you, Lindsay, I'm a, a true crime. I'm very fascinated with it in general. And this thing that, you know, murderers are just these, you know, these evil creatures that almost come from another planet or something and don't have any redeeming features, I think it's very, very important just to give a well-rounded. It's not condoning anything you did, of course. None of us are doing that. I initially tried to steer clear of the who did it aspect, which will come to later on. Mm. But, of course, that was really impossible. I mean, I was thinking, well, obviously John Edders has said this and Ludwig Kennedy has said that. So, obviously, that is covered in the book, but it's not the book's main theme. The main theme is it's a biography of a man who did terrible, terrible things, but he was a man for all that. It's hard for most people to think of a criminal as not being some sort of a demon, devil, monster figure, who has absolutely no redeeming characteristics yeah, at exactly. all. And I did try to show a degree of empathy with Christie. Is there any just one thing you could say you discovered about Christie that perhaps might surprise people? I mean, outside of his dark deeds, I mean, is there anything? Okay, well, just very briefly, and I don't think this is covered in anything of a book, he was quite a socialist. He was um, a member of of his trade union, but also he was a trade union rep for his workplace, the British Road Services, in the early 1950s, and he represented his union at various conferences and various meetings, and he was quite passionate in his politics, amongst other things. Just like Dennis Nielsen then. Exactly. He was a union leader at work after the job centre. So. Yeah. John, when did, your, when did you do your book, the e-book? I think the first version was 2014. The website that preceded it, I think probably I started pulling it together in 2009 and 10. And as I say, it's been a work in progress ever since, really, which is you know, one of the benefits, as I said before, of having something that you can, you know, if you do find you've missed something out or made a mistake, you can deal with it easily and yeah you can constantly modify it yeah yes and um you have to be careful because you can you can start going backwards with it you know you, you can go on fiddling and end up with something that's less good than where you started but it's certainly a comfort to be able to add you know in the last few months with the advent of Foley's book which we'll come on to no doubt i've modified bits throughout the entire thing, you know, I haven't just nailed on the, his book, you know, I've, I've sort mm. of altered some shades here and there in light of, you know, what must be regarded as a highly authoritative, knowledgeable contribution from him. So it would be ridiculous to, uh, to not reflect that in the rest of the whole story. So I wonder, would it be improper for me to just quote one paragraph from it? Um, and it oh, this is a hard sell. Now, it's on the subject of Christie and what we were talking about a moment ago about what Jonathan has done with his book, which is to move away from, you know, let's find even more extreme ways of condemning someone, because it's ultimately, that's there's no real interest in that. It's far more interesting. Anyway, what I said, it's commenting on the notes that um, he was making whilst he was in Pentonville, already just awaiting the day for his execution. And he was keeping notes and he was acknowledging that he had been driven by a dark compulsion that was very much at odds with his persona in other regards as a husband, a neighbour, a citizen and a human being. He reflected upon his distaste for conflict and violence 
His victimhood as a boy, his affection for Ethel and the fondness he had always had for animals and children, including the regrets that he had long felt that he and Ethel had never had the good fortune of having had children themselves. As Jonathan said, you know, he did some very terrible, terrible things, but he was made out of the same stuff as we are. And um, I mean, all, all his neighbours liked him. I, don't, I have not read any mm. sort of bad reports from any of his neighbours mm. who, and they was, that's why they were so shocked. You know, obviously, when it was revealed what he'd done, they just couldn't believe it. And I mean, even though obviously some people knew works-wise that he'd got past misdemeanors or whatever, even then, he was still so kind. I spoke to the people in Rillington Place. You know, when there was parties going on, he'd do whatever he could. He used to babysit children with Ethel. He used to look after mm. other people's children. He'd really love children, I think. And I think he genuinely regretted that Ethel sadly couldn't have them. You know, so there's lots of... He, he was a genuinely nice person to a lot of people. Yes. So nobody is black and white. This is the point of psychology, isn't it? You know, and what makes Absolutely. him fascinating. And I mean, you know, for example, if they had had children, of course people would assume, oh, he's going to be a terrible father or he's going to do something awful to his children. But, you know, there's many, many cases of murderers that it's almost like a compartmentalization. They've got this terrible urge that has to be satisfied, let's say, but that could be totally separate from their life. So, yeah, very interesting. All right. Well, just briefly, I do want to get to Mr. Thorley's book, but uh, we're going to run out of time again. But uh, the BBC drama, so as I was saying earlier, we had uh, mused on this forum that it would be lovely if someone did a drama that uh, presented, you know, possibility A and possibility B. Instead, they went with the standard version. My only observation, really, I think they got the sort of London, the foggy London feel quite good. I think Tim Roth in the main was fairly good. The voice and everything was fairly good. One thing I was very surprised, they made the rooms look massive. I don't know if that was whether just to get the camera in or something, but they made that front room look absolutely enormous compared to what it was like. So again, uh, brief comments, if you don't mind, on the, the BBC drama. Keep I it really enjoyed polite. it. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it as a three-part drama. I, I just re-watched it mm. a few days ago. And it is unique in the fact it shows three different perspectives. So you've got Ethel's story, Tim's story, and Christie's story. That, that's unusual. That's nice. Sadly, it is, as you said, enhancing the traditional version of the story, which mm. is a shame for us scholars. But mm. Obviously, it's just going to compound what everybody else in the country thinks. So it's not challenging in that way. I think the way they filmed it was challenging in some respects. I thought the set was very good. The atmosphere mm. was good. Again, it's just the inaccuracies. But again, it's not a documentary. So you really have to you know, keep the two separate facts and fiction, enjoy it for its medium, enjoy for what it is. But, you know, Jonathan's written pages of how many different inaccuracies there are in the film and fair play. Yeah, I mean, just before I throw to Jonathan and John, just want to say briefly, I get what you said. And I I think a drama is for a drama's sake is one thing. But I think the disappointment is that it was done in 2016 when you've got all this knowledge, you know, I mean, 1970, 71 with the film, that's one thing, but... It's Come because on. it was popular, but, but look at the Jack the Ripper story. The real conspiracy theory is, is still getting done because it sells well, you know. So there's certain motives in certain stories. People don't want to go against the grain. And I have to say, having worked on a lot of documentaries in the Ripper world, the reason why a lot of the documentaries are still the same is because you cannot physically get financing and support by companies for new innovative ideas on an old story. It very rarely happens that there's certain things with the Ripper case they want in their documentaries. And if you're going, but actually that's not true, it could be aliens, not interested, the financial people want this, this and this. And I don't know the background well enough for the Rillington Place drama, but I'd imagine there'd be an element of that in it Mm. because it wouldn't have got financial support if it had suddenly changed everything and went against the norm accepted. Yeah, I understand. You don't don't always get free reign to make all the programme that you want in politics. All right, Jonathan or John, brief comments? I think I can summarise my position by the strap line that I wrote for the chapter in the book about it, which I I think I pinched it more or less verbatim from Jonathan. (laughs) Poorly researched, agenda-driven, and the characters' travesties. Pretty scathing, isn't it? I I don't um, think you should hold back. Tell us what you think. No, no, (laughs) other than that, it was terrible. The... um, (laughs) What redeems it, if anything does, is that, of course, being the BBC, they have pretty well bottomless pockets. And so, you know, what makes somebody good is the fact that they were able to spend so much money. And it's, it isn't without merit. 
and it does have the decency to say that it's based on a true story rather than it is a true story. Mm. I think the final line on the captions was something to the effect that, you know, to this very day, the Evanses continue to campaign to have Timothy declared innocent. Um, that's not true. You know, that horse was finally flogged to death in 2004. So, you know, that's a bit of romantic mythology on top of all the other. I think I start off by saying to describe it as a missed opportunity would be altogether too charitable. And that's kind of how I feel. It could have been great, but, the, you know, the ball was dropped so many times. You know, you just think, oh, God, give up. Jonathan, you've got two minutes 30. What do you think? <laughs> okay, well, I, I tend to agree more with John than Lindsay on this one, I'm afraid. I think it was pretty dire. Just one small thing. In episode one, Ethel is seen being strangled by Christy. Ethel then goes to her brother in Sheffield and says, oh, by the way, my husband's been strangling me. And he says, oh, well, um, I'll have to wring his neck. Well, I've just been reading the actual statement that, that her brother said. And he said in 1953, she has never complained about her husband's behaviour to me. So, wow. you know, I've got something that's completely wrong. That's just one small thing. Apart from all, all that stuff, the other major thing is that there's no attempt ever to show Christie being more than a, a two-dimensional figure at best. There's nothing about his background, his motivation, his psychology, why he did what he did, his other interests. He's basically like a character, like an evil demon in a horror film. Mm-hmm. We sort of know he does evil things because he's an evil person. And we don't really get any deeper than that, which is pretty shallow. In mm-hmm. three hours of viewing time or slightly less, I think there should have been a bit more of an opportunity to do that. Because in the recent TV drama about Nilsson, which I'm not an expert on Nilsson case, but I thought that was done rather better. Because at least there was an attempt to probe Nilsson's psychology's motivation, etc., etc., rather than just show him as a horrible person, which I'm not saying he wasn't, but, you know, it does try and, and give a bit more of a psychological dimension to this man rather than just being a fiend, which he is in the film and the TV version. Okay. All right, final stretch. This is Zoom meeting number four, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to tell the listeners that as well. And we're all hanging in there. Let's get finally to Peter Thorley's book. So um, I'm going to give basically you guys the floor because um, you were involved in it. Who would like well, to I was. I wasn't. <laughs> oh, you weren't? No, I, you met, you met no. Peter Thorley, though, didn't you? Yeah, we got invited to his birthday party, oh, Ben's, okay. which was like a dual party for the celebration of his, his book being published as well. So that was amazing. It was lovely to meet him. And yeah. his family but no i confess i had nothing to do with the book the lads did but i didn't <laughs> oh, okay well i've just got a quick question why did he write the book now why didn't he write it sooner i don't mean that as a criticism i'm just just a question do we know i don't know they've been researching the story all along i understand that much but um you're quite right it's very late i mean by all means Better late than never, of course. You know, the most fantastic and unexpected surprise. I've, but um, I've just thought of a possible reason, going back to some articles I read a few years ago, actually. After the BBC production and around that time, he was actually interviewed in the local press. They tracked Peter down. So he was obviously talking about his sister. And it was at that point he started to say how he didn't believe that Evans was innocent Mm. so I think then he got his voice known in the press I thought other press reports were written they interviewed him he did a few press reports actually in the cemetery next to Beryl because he wanted I remember this he wants to reinter her in a Jewish cemetery because allegedly she was Jewish so I know all of that campaign was happening so I think then it was probably just a journalistic thing the Daily Mirror or whatever approached him and then they got the ghostwriter involved okay yeah Mm. John, have you got more you wanted to say there about the book itself? What was your involvement? What, and Jonathan, afterwards, what was your involvement? Well, Jonathan very kindly made an introduction to David Meikle, who was the ghostwriter. And my role was really that of fact checker. And I was sent, gosh, half a dozen drafts. And um, by that time, it, the pressure was on. You know, we were really working round the clock virtually. And so I did my best to just make sure that the, you know, the factual 
stuff was as right as it could be. Unfortunate that perhaps some of the corrections I was able to offer didn't survive into the final thing, but that was partly a feature of how the book came into being in the first place. You know, it, it had to be commercial, quite apart from anything else. You know, it had to be something that people would want to buy. It wasn't going to just be a, a history book. I don't want to say much more than that in the sense of, but it's, you know, a fantastic, as I say, surprise to have such a input from an authority that it's so clearly in a position to know better than anyone else, certainly better than Ludwig Kennedy or, or anyone else. And having met the man himself and found what a nice and humble and decent and good person, and, you know, I might even just, if you'll indulge me, I'll um, risk of sort of quoting myself again. Um, That's okay. I say on the blog, above all, this book is a moving personal story of the enduring love a boy had and still has for his beloved big sister and tiny niece, both of whom he still misses and mourns to this day. Mm. And I think that's it. That's the essence of it for me. And it was an enormous privilege to be able to contribute a tiny part to it and meet the man himself and even see the ring which he refers to in the book belonging to Beryl that he's kept right up yeah. until till now. That was pretty, you know, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by that. Yeah, that was incredible, wasn't it? That was the, the thing Beryl had given him, well, it must have been just before she died, right? Day, day, yes. The latter months of uh, 1949. Wow. Yes. All right, Jonathan, what would you like to say? What was your involvement and what, what would you like to say about the book in general? Well, I was contacted by David Michael, I'm thinking about April 2020, quite out of the blue. I had no idea this project was going on. And um, I suppose I was just contacted because obviously I've written the last book of any merit, maybe, on the topic. And I was asked to write a short piece about the guilt of Timothy Evans, which I was happy to do so. And I think both John and Lindsay had a look at this and made it even better uh, which is very kind of them to spend their time doing that. The only part of the book, apart from that, which I knew about before reading the book, after it was published, was I'd been sent the chapter on Beryl and her siblings' wartime evacuee experiences, which I thought was very good because um, it hadn't been told before, and it gives a lot more knowledge about Beryl's character. I've said it already, that Beryl's character is an enigma, which is what I wrote in my book nine years ago. But now that's completely untrue because we now have a personal memoir of someone who knew her very well indeed, who talks a lot about his sister. And I think it's the best and most extensive portrait we're ever likely to have of Beryl Evans. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, the book's greatest strength. I'd also like to add, I think, the book is also useful because it reinforces the impression given, I think, by myself and John Edders about the characters of Christie and Evans. It doesn't say too much, to be fair, about Mrs. Christie, but certainly there's quite a lot more about John Christie and Timothy Evans. I mean, I don't think that is as revealing as what we now learn about Beryl, but it's good to have it in the book as well. Mm. Another strength of the book is, I think, it's very easy to read. Lots of people will be able to read this book who perhaps don't normally read academic books or history books. I mean, for example, my son, who was 12 at the time, he managed to read the book and understand it. And I know the people who don't read a huge amount of nonfiction generally managed to find it very easy to read and to grasp it, which is obviously very good and very useful. It's done very well on Amazon. If you look, it's a must. That book has been reviewed more than probably all of the books about the Christie case put together. And also, perhaps surprisingly, it's had such high ratings because Edo's book, people either like it or hate it. And likewise, House to Remember, and to a lesser extent, mine as well. It's had bad reviews from people who think Evans was innocent. Mm. And this book, of course, strongly says that he wasn't. And mm. yet hardly anyone, I don't think one or two people, have said, oh, well, it's nonsense because you know, he was innocent. But most people haven't taken that view at all, 
which is good. There's still a lot of people there who are open-minded, despite having seen the film, maybe, and the TV version, etc. So I, I think there is a lot going for the book. That said, I don't want to be critical of it. I mean, like any book, including mine, um, it's not perfect. There is room for improvement and revision and editing, look even better. But I think it is, in many ways, a very good book and does add a lot to our knowledge of the case. You can't say that about every book that has been written on it. Yeah, I think that feeling of being in the house, I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it was called Inside Temerlington Place. Yeah, I mean, we have to accept, as you said, every book, um, generally books have a tagline, have a something to hang them on, let's say. Or hang them on, what a terrible expression, <laughs> excuse me. I'll probably cut that out. Yeah, books have a tagline, there's a commercial aspect, obviously, I mean... There's nothing wrong with that per se. Okay, so we get to, I guess this is a $64,000 question after two hours, and I've very much enjoyed this, by the way. Thanks a lot to all of you for participating. Okay, so if you could only ever express one opinion about who killed Beryl and Geraldine, I'm not, I wasn't expecting to crack the case here tonight, but um, if you could uh, only guess or say one scenario that you think is the most likely, what would you say? Go on, Lindsay. Having weighed up all the evidence and seen a lot of files and things as well, I firmly believe Timothy Evans killed his wife and child. Okay. And would Christy have known about it? What do you feel might be Christy's, if not involvement, then awareness, let's say? Every day, my opinion on that changes. Mm. It's really complicated because half of me thinks he didn't know, but the other half thinks he must have known for various reasons. Mm. So I'm still divided on that, I have to say. Even if you look at Christie's statements from his own trial years later, it still doesn't make things any clearer from what happened to Beryl and Geraldine. But I do believe that sadly Tim did kill both his wife and child, that I can say. Interesting. All right, before I throw to John and Jonathan, perhaps we could clear one thing up. Is the story about Christie having a spy hole and is, is the general perception that if someone was at the front door, he would want to know who was there? There was this feeling that he wanted to know everything that was happening. There was no spy hole there, according to um, okay. Peter's book. Peter Thorley okay. firmly denies that in the book. But, yeah, the fact is his face is always in the window looking out through the curtains. There's lots of people who've corroborated that in their statements. Mm. So clearly is, he was definitely a bit of a busybody and wanted yeah. to know who was coming in. But, you know, who doesn't want to know who's coming in their house? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because he had the ground floor, he kind of had the run of that ground floor, and it did tend to dominate. Obviously, I was, I've never been to the house, but it tended to dominate. Well, he the had house. the run of the garden as well, don't and forget. The garden, he had the yeah, run of the of garden. He wasn't the longest serving tenant, was he, Jonathan? Because Kitchener was there before him, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. But it, he was just absent in hospital. So, really, he'd got the, the run of the house, really. I mean, you know, I know this is a real life case, but what's so incredible is that if it was, it's the kind of thing that if it was a story, if you made it up, no one would believe it because you've got the garden and the wash house and you've got the thigh bone propping up the fence and you've got the fact that this guy is this guy may have not been involved with the Evans murders but was obviously involved when the police came because he had two corpses in the garden I mean it's just a, it's just a remarkable drama I mean obviously the main thing to say about it is that it's gruesome it's terrible but you know you can't deny it's also very captivating and in fact as we were saying, it's pretty much still a mystery. So, um, John, what's just your gut feeling? What would you say? Well, really, the what Peter says in his book is, to me, is preaching to the converted. To, to use that expression, you know, it, it gave me no difficulty at all to believe what he says in the book. You know, unfortunately, a husband drunkenly strangling a wife isn't that rare a thing both then and and now so I'm, I'm quite convinced that Evans murdered Beryl and with Geraldine my feeling is that Christie was involved in Geraldine's murder whether you know who physically did the deed I'm not sure of course I'm not sure who can be but don't forget Christie knew and only he knew that there were already skeletons in the garden and that you know he would have had every reason to want this problem to go away as quickly and as permanently as possible and again as i spoke about earlier in a house of that size with that number of people 
you know, it's impossible, I think, mm. for someone, the busy body, as we say, about Christy, to, to not know. You wouldn't have to be a genius to realise that the blazing rows that they had and the threats, you know, Evans's spiteful demeanour. You know, I think his confessions were the truth. Yeah, Very I mean, sad. adding to this uh, unfortunate sort of sense of what I was saying, like it's almost like a drama. You've you've then got the workmen as well. You've got to factor that in, the fact that they were there. And I, I know there were problems with the timesheets and everything, but the things that have always bothered me, again, people have taken it as read that Beryl died on Tuesday the 8th of November and Geraldine died on Thursday. And this idea that Christy or anyone could have looked after a baby for two days, just you know, gone out to work and, you know, the baby's just there crying. I mean, that, that just has never added up to me. And if you take, for example, the film, the Richard Attenborough film, I mean, anyone watching that, the bit that really is the big red flag is that Christie's apparently, obviously we know he didn't gas Beryl Evans as well because her body was exhumed. We know that. But he's strangling Beryl Evans and she's screaming for her life, which undoubtedly if that had happened, she would have been in this house. And I mean, uh, Jonathan, would, would we presume that the walls were also pretty much paper thin? Did you say that? I mean, I, I would imagine it's probably like a, like a student hall of residence where you can hear exactly right. what's happening next door. Yeah. In, in that I've had experience of, yeah. Right, yes, yes. Yeah. So, Jonathan, what's your gut feeling then? What, what would you say? A few years ago, John Kernow and myself and a retired police officer gave a talk at Kensington Library. I think it was about 2012 or 2013. Yes. Topic, and we were asked the very same question at the end. John gave a similar answer, I think, to what he's given now. The policeman gave the Evans is innocent statement. And then I, I felt quite self-conscious about saying what I'm, what I'm about to say now, but don't feel it now because I don't have a live audience in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I felt almost apologetic in a way to say that I think it's almost certain that Evans killed his wife and baby, as both John and Lindsay have already said. Uh, I think the, the overwhelming evidence is that he was guilty of both crimes. As to Christie's knowledge stroke involvement, I think Christie had some knowledge of what was going on, but how much we'll never know. Mm. And, I, and to say that more than that, it's, it's speculation. I think, obviously, he, he would have been horrified and terrified in a way that two murders had happened in a house where he had two skeletons buried already. And it's not something he would have wanted to have happened, I don't think. But exactly what he knew it's hard to know but i think he must have known something okay i was rereading stuff last night and i'm actually moving towards the conclusion actually that beryl and the baby were both killed on that tuesday night okay and then their bodies were placed in kitchener's flat and didn't leave there until after the workman had gone saturday morning so i think saturday night or sunday is when they were then put in that water I don't yeah. think they were put there, as Evan said, on the night. The workmen's statements say there was definitely nothing there, and Sevlin had said the same thing. So I, mean, I don't think they were there Tuesday night. I think he killed them on the Tuesday, and I don't think there was a two-day difference at all. It's a load of rubbish. No, no, killed them both either. that night, but then the bodies were hid. Now, to be fair, if both of those bodies were in Kitchener's flat, Christy must maybe then have known what was going on and he helped him hide them there for those few days don't forget he had to go to the doctors again because he suddenly got a really bad attack with his bad back that would make sense if he'd been shifting bodies down the stairs into the wash house so reflecting now i think probably christy definitely didn't kill them but definitely helped cover it up because of his own issues in the back garden exactly of course yes so it's so strange isn't it because you've got this idea of bringing bodies down the wash house in that tiny house and just think I'm kind of sitting on the fence, really, because I'd, I'd rather ask you three guys what you think. I mean, I, if you want my opinion, uh, I'd probably go with something along the lines of the Rupert Furno version that Evans killed his wife. And I mean, Rupert Furno says, and this sounds like the most terrible thing to say, that it almost didn't matter who actually strangled Geraldine, which sounds like such a terrible thing to say, because in the end, that's really the most tragic death. I mean, it's too horrifying to even think about. And the fact that, you know, the, the tie was... You know, the weapon was still there when the police discovered it. I can't imagine how the police would even get over discovering that, to be honest. But um, you think you have to remember how those hmm. the modus operandi of these crimes of the murder of baby and mum are very different to the way Christie did his victims. 
Okay. Right. So for example, Christy was obsessed with hiding the bodies, whether that be under the soil in the garden or in a cupboard. Whoever shoved them, you know, sort of in there, I do believe that that was going to be a temporary storage area and Tim was going to use his car maybe to act well, the van from the work van to actually mm -hmm. get rid of the bodies. People don't understand how obsessed Timothy Evans was with the case of Donald Hume and his murder of Stanley Setti. The fact that he had newspaper articles of the set case, the fact that he'd actually wrapped up the body of Beryl same way almost that Setis had been done. Hmm. Also, whoever, you know, Christie's hiding bodies, whoever's putting them in there, they're not meant to be there forever, okay, because clearly they're going to be moved to somewhere else. That's just a temporary holding space, in my opinion. That yeah. baby wasn't even wrapped up. Books have got it wrong. They said there was a package behind the door. That baby was not wrapped up. She's just no. lying there with timber on top of her. That suggests panic. That suggests somebody who, you know, and I don't, I don't think Christie would kill a baby. He did actually love children. It's mm. more likely a father in his rage who was the baby's crying. He's just killed the mother. He's half drunk. It's mm. more likely he killed his own child regretfully, and he probably mm. regretted it later. But saying that, I do think now that maybe, you know, there's certain things that Tim said in his statement. Why would he suddenly make up where it's going to be down a drain or someone's coming from East Acton to look after this child? It's like mm. those are the type of things that Christy will have said to Evans to help cover it up. Mm. You know, that would make total sense why Evans came out and said, I'm confessing here in Wales. You know, I've killed my wife in London. She's down the drain. They go and look down the drain. There's nothing there. That's such a weird thing to come out with unless Christy had said to him, don't worry about it. I'll get rid of her down the drain. He could have said anything or nothing. But he mm. chose the sentence of the drain. And Christy said, I don't nobody in, in East Acton. But again, that's such a, a random thing for Timothy to come out with. It sounds as though it's almost pre-recorded. It's already been pre-arranged in a previous conversation. So I wouldn't be surprised if Christy possibly said stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, I think the East Acton thing, uh, it seems a coincidence that the number seven bus, of course, goes to East Acton. It, you know, that's its final destination. So either whether Evans or Christy... Yeah, and also yeah. I was looking on the map yesterday. Don't forget, baby Geraldine was born in Queen Charlotte's Hospital, and that's going out towards next to East Acton on the map. So, I mean, Timothy didn't know that area. Well, presumably, I don't know what he made. Presumably he went to the hospital after Geraldine's birth. I don't know. I mean, yet another complication of this idea that Timothy Evans's mental age was uh, maybe 12 or, or that, that he was at the mentality of a child. Can anyone clear that up, or do we know that, or...? Yeah, I mean, his IQ was it was measured at 65, but he was given various tests, you know, sort of like maths, English, that sort of stuff. And they said, obviously, he's less than average intelligence. But it was also said that he was quite streetwise. He, was, he could talk normally about common subjects of, of general knowledge. And, of course, as a van driver, he'd have to sort of read signs, read labels and packages, mm. that sort of thing. So clearly, we're looking at someone who, who's poorly educated. I mean, that's true. I mean, he was an average in intelligence. I mean, I'm afraid of recent book whose name I won't mention. I'm, afraid, I'm glad it's not mine. First, him has been retarded, which mm. I think is certainly inaccurate in this case. Yeah, I mean, he would have had a vocabulary. I think the IQ gives about, so about 9,000 words vocabulary. And also, I don't think he was completely illiterate. There's accounts of him reading the newspapers, doing the pools, you know, if he's got driving jobs and that, he's got to be able to read certain things. So I don't think he's completely illiterate. Maybe he played on the fact that he might have been. Maybe he played on it for various reasons. But I think he probably could read more than we realise. I mean, um, in prison, he was advised by his friend, Donald Hume, to mm. act more stupid than you are and admit to nothing that cannot be proved and so on and so forth mm. so with a bit of guidance from his mentor mm. I think <laughs> have, uh, encouraged him to uh play, play dumb yeah. yeah did you not advise him to recant his confessions as well on the basis that being illiterate that he wasn't able to sign them off as being a true and accurate account i mean i haven't got the exact that, that text in front of me but it, it was things to that effect it was obviously a very stupid thing to confess because Hume did not confess to anything that the police could not 100% prove and therefore yes. he was away with it. And obviously Evans didn't. But it's just strange that he meets Evans one day and then the next day Evans is saying to his mum, Christie did it. And also don't, don't forget Hume actually claimed that Evans did actually confess to killing the baby to him in the cell. That's so we've right. even got like a confession in jail to each other, you know, that he actually did it because she was just screaming her head off. He did my head in. And you wasn't know, Christy and, watching or something? Isn't that the confession? 
Well, Hume made several comments right. times about this. He wrote about it in an article in Sunday Express in 1958, and also, I think, in 1965, when he was in the Swiss prison as well. And in one version, he says that Christie was in the room when Geraldine was killed. But in, in another version, he says, oh, well, you know, it was Evans who did it. Of course, Hume had a small daughter of his own. So, I mean, although Hume was a terrible man in many ways, I mean, like most men, well, most fathers, however bad they are, aren't likely to kill their children. And if they discover a man who does, then they're not likely to be friendly towards them. And he physically attacked Evans at one stage, and one of the prison staff independently said, well, we had to separate the two of them. So that wow. does suggest that Hume's account is correct. Wow. I mean, it's been absolutely fantastic, and we've done a good job of, could do a follow-up, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. Does anyone like to make any closing comments or any... Uh, one little thing that emerged from Thorley's book, which I hadn't considered, others might have done, and it, it seems like a small point, but the fact that Beryl and her best friend, Joan Vincent, of course, same age, but the same build and the same hair colour, and because of the time after the war, they used to swap clothes. Mm-hmm. And so when one of the workmen, who sounded as though he wasn't, didn't really want to get involved, but he sort of under under a degree of pressure and questioning said, yes, he'd seen a young woman with a pram on the morning of Tuesday day. The possibility arose that that might not have been Beryl, but Joan and someone who didn't know either of them would have no way. I just thought it was an interesting point, which could go some way towards helping with the difficulty about, you know, the, the comings and goings at the, the very last hours. You know, it, it seemed to make so much sense when someone pointed it out. So it's something that I it hadn't dawned on me when I was trying to make sense of the, the varying accounts. So that was something... I think for me, when I was working at the Crime Museum and I got to look through, because I hadn't seen them at the National Archives, I don't know if they're all there anyway, but certainly the set that I saw in the Crime Museum of the original photographs of Beryl's body, it was really after seeing her body in the mortuary and the effect that basically someone had beaten the crap out of her, which is not Christie's style. You know, if you see the way her face is bloodied and bruised and beaten up, this is a full frontal physical fight, very much a domestic thing going on. And the fact that even when Christie did confess to killing Beryl, everything he said about how he did the murder was inaccurate. There was no gassing. There was no, you know, everything he said is rubbish. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can might as well dismiss that. And of course, we know that Christie was saying, you know, the more the merrier, possibly, because he wanted to get off on an insanity please. I thought, well, I'll add Beryl to the list, so that'll help my case. Yeah. And I think for me, seeing the photographs possibly really pushed me to change my mind a lot about the case. Yeah, and wasn't there also the, the Basil Thorley issue, Beryl's other brother? He was pretty convinced, wasn't he, Jonathan? I think, Basil he, changed, Thorley. I think he changed his mind quite a bit. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, John Eddowes says that he was convinced of Evans's guilt, but there was a TV documentary, I think about 2011, in which he's a bit which is, is about the innocence of Timothy Evans, of course. And I, I think he was saying, oh, yeah, he was suggesting that Evans was innocent then. But I believe he made oh, yeah. his mind yet again, because I think he was leaned on by Evans's sister and half-sister. Someone ha- has mentioned that to me, I think. Okay. And Jonathan, as a Christie author, any final words? Because we're um, going to wrap well, up in a minute or so, so. I think one important aspect of the case which I haven't really touched upon and I think I think we really need to is that we need to remember all the innocent victims in this case we've mentioned Beryl and Geraldine Evans of course um, they're very important but we also should remember Ruth Hurst, Muriel Ede, Ethel Christie, Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson and Hectorina McLennan I think we really need to, rem- to remember their terrible fates as well as all the other people that we've been focusing on. I think a lot of books don't really spend much time on them and often get information about them incorrect. Mm. So I think we need to spare all of these unfortunate women a thought as well. There is actually a podcast series on iTunes called The Other Side of Rillington Place, and it's I think it's 10 parts, and it's pretty much standard version. However, it does focus on the victims, and it gives each victim their own podcast episode so that's pretty good and i mean the one that really stood out was um 
poor um, Kathleen Maloney had a just a, just an awful life, which obviously came to a, a horrible end. Some of these victims, they had very difficult lives anyway. So yeah, I think we should, yeah, I said always remember that. Right, I think that's it. So I just want to say massive thanks. This will probably be on YouTube, but I may put it on in podcast form as well. So in the show notes, I will put links to any of your work that you want to um, to highlight. So I think we've done a decent job here. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, well, thank you for hosting it and organising it. Yes. Well, I've got three podcasts at the moment, so I get lots of practice. None of them which to do with crime. One of them is about John Lennon, one of them is about films, and one of them is about psychology. So, Lindsay, I'm with you on the psychology angle. I think it's it's fascinating. And and like we said at the beginning, this is, although I think you, you three guys have a, seem, not going to say sure, but you seem to have a, a fairly firm idea. But I think it is an enduring mystery in the details, let's say. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, we're never going to know, things, are we? Yeah. Even Peter Thorley himself was not there on the day, so that limits what we can ever truly know. I'm going to have a walk down, um, ten minute walk from where I am, because I'm just mm. sort of near Notting Hill High Street. If you just carry mm. on down to the left towards Shepherd's Bush, I'm literally like a five minute walk from where the Larters Builders Company was on Holland yeah. Park Avenue. One of the books, I think it was the Edo's one, goes into a lot more details about the builders' reports and also actually photographs two of the builders, um, Anderson's and Jones's timesheets. So I've actually been looking at the original timesheets from that mm. book. I blew them up, printed them out, and I've been like corroborating what their statement said and contradicting their own timesheet. It is interesting. It's quite fascinating. That's, another, that's another rabbit hole for uh, next time we meet. I yeah. uh, should just say uh, one very, very final thing. This, of course, took place, I don't think it was actually in Notting Hill, technically. It's, uh, I mean, I'd call it Labbrook Grove. I think it was Nottingdale, perhaps. But anyone who's has heard of this and you say, oh, this happened in Notting Hill, they'll probably give totally the wrong impression of what the area was like. You know, they probably think of Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, but it was a very, very rundown area. And, of course, that does lends some credence to the fact that there could be a coincidence of two stranglers you know poverty is always linked to crime sadly Absolutely. even, even yeah. today so and that's i mean that's statistically yeah. proven that's not speculation not in hell they used to call it didn't they, did they? <laughs> yeah it was a dreadful place nothing yeah. like around. yeah high crime area all right yeah. we've got one minute so yeah final thank you thanks for doing this and i hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening I hope you stuck it out to the end. We did, so you have to as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody, and goodbye. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.